anticipating the unintended. Number 120. Anticipating the unintended. Number 120. Global Policy Watch. A short history of the Breedbird Doctrine. Bringing an Indian perspective to burning global issues. In edition number 117, where we covered the resignation of Pratip Banameta, we had a polemic by Edward Skidelsky as suggested reading in our homework section, linked on screen. We specifically quoted this line. The woke left is currently pursuing this goal by way of a Gramscian long march through the institutions, a progressive co-option of the schools, universities, state bureaucracies and big corporations. What's this Gramscian long march that's mentioned here? That's the first question for this post. Separately, I was drawn to a US national survey done by Cato Institute last year on freedom of expression. The results weren't surprising to me, including the stupid graph that I have copied below from their site. Strong liberals stand out, however, as the only political group who feel they can express themselves. Nearly 6 in 10, or 58%, of staunch liberals feel they can say what they believe. However, centrist liberals feel differently. A slim majority, or 52%, of liberals feel they have to self-censor, as do 64% of moderates and 77% of conservatives. This demonstrates that political expression is an issue that divides the democratic coalition between centrist Democrats and their left flank. See image on screen. I take the strong liberal in the US to be the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. They are the woke Skidelsky was referring to in his article. There's no equivalent survey of this kind in India. But I would venture to suggest the strong liberals in India might not poll as well on speaking their minds, nor would the Indian conservatives be as reticent as their American counterparts in today's times. Based on incidents like P.B. Mehta's resignation that seem to have become more frequent in recent years and the chilling effect that follows, I would guess these percentages might just flip in India. Anyway, the percentages aren't of interest to me. My interest is in the phenomenon. This dominance of one side that makes the other side self-censor themselves. What explains this? That's the second question for this post. Part 1. That old chestnut. The Breedbird Doctrine. Both these questions, on Gramscian Long March, and on self-censorship, bring me to the oft-repeated Breedbird Doctrine. Politics is downstream of culture. That is, change the culture and sooner, politics will change. Now you'd think this was an insight that galvanized the American conservative right following the Obama takeover of the establishment. It was what got Trump into the White House with Steve Bannon in tow, that this was part of the right-wing toolkit. Nothing could be further from the truth. The left was likely the originator of the idea that culture influences politics. To understand this better, we will go through a short history of manufacture of consent and cultural hegemony. Knowing it will help address the two questions raised at the start of this post as well. Part 2. Manufacture of Consent The term manufacture of consent first appeared in Walter Lippmann's book Public Opinion, P-U-B-L-I-S-H-E-D 1922. For Lippmann, the world was too complex for an ordinary individual to comprehend. In order to make sense of it, people carried a mental image of the world inside their heads. These pictures were what drove groups or individuals to act in society in the name of public opinion. A strong democracy, therefore, needs institutions and media that help in creating the most accurate interpretations of the world in the minds of the people. 
But this isn't easy. Lippmann was worried democracy relied on something so irrational as a public opinion that takes shape in the minds of fully informed and easily manipulated people. For Lippmann, policymakers and experts should use narratives for manufacture of consent among people which enables public opinion to be channeled in a manner that's consistent with what's good for society. Lippmann believed persuasion and the knowledge of how to create consent through propaganda will change politics in the age of mass media. As he wrote, a revolution is taking place, infinitely more significant than any shifting of economic power. Within the life of the generation now in control of affairs, persuasion has become a self-conscious art and a regular organ of popular government. None of us begins to understand the consequences, but it is no daring prophecy to say that the knowledge of how to create consent will alter every political calculation and modify every political premise. Under the impact of propaganda, not necessarily in the sinister meaning of the word alone, the old constants of our thinking have become variables. Gramsci, therefore, concluded that for the struggle, or evolution, to take over means of production to even begin, the people will have to win the war over cultural hegemony. He used the WW1 terms that were in vogue then. For the war of maneuver, that is a direct attack over the enemy, to be successful, it has to be preceded by the war of position, digging trenches and cutting off enemy lines etc. The people will have to win the war of ideas and beliefs, by creating their own cultural hegemony and taking over the public sphere through control of religious institutions, media, and universities. This is the Gramscian march, that Skidelsky referred to in his article. This was a far-reaching idea about how the nature of power had changed in a world, where universities and mass media shaped people's thinking. The power of engineering consent using culture is the first step to launch a successful attack over an existing power structure. While Gramsci used neo-Marxian terms to expound his ideas, the broader implications of his argument were clear. In short, establishing cultural hegemony is the first step to winning the minds and eventually, the votes of people, we are talking of democracy here. Over time, this hegemony in the public sphere will earn you the long-term consent of the people who will consider it their natural state. Self-censorship will follow as an outcome of this hegemony. That addresses the second question on why people self-censor themselves. Over a hundred years since Lippmann first wrote about manufacture of consent, the idea that politics is downstream of culture has only acquired greater currency in a saturated media space that all of us inhabit now. The left and the right have both acquired the toolkits to fight this war of position in various democracies around the world. In the US, it is woke left on a supposed Gramscian march today. In India, I suspect, the shoe is on the other foot. But the march is definitely on. India Policy Watch. Mandal again. Insights on burning policy issues in India. A constitution bench of the Supreme Court is set to announce its judgment on the Maratha Quota case, linked on screen. Amongst other issues, the court will decide on the question if state governments can breach the 50% reservation ceiling. This 50% limit comes from the Indra Sornay judgment of 1993, linked on screen, which legally upheld the recommendations of the Mandal Committee report. Legal issues aside, today's political reality makes this judgment even more riveting. Perhaps all political parties appear to be in favor of going beyond this 50% limit, although in different ways. The NDA government has already increased reservations to tilt a 60% in central government jobs, central government educational institutions, and private educational institutions through the 103rd Constitutional Amendment in 2019, linked on screen. 
the additional 10% seats are now meant to be reserved for economically weaker sections, or use, of citizens not already benefiting from reservation. In other words, this quota is for persons from non-SC, non-ST, non-OBC classes, as long as their earning is below a defined income threshold. On the other hand, many caste-based and one-caste-dominated political parties are in favor of breaching the 50% ceiling in order to extend or increase quotas for their caste base. So it appears that the overton window has shifted and the 50% ceiling is unlikely to continue. Not to forget that 50% ceiling number itself is quite contrived. Read what the Indra Sorne case judgment says. Just as every power must be exercised reasonably and fairly, the power conferred by Clause 4 of Article 16 should also be exercised in a fair manner and within reasonably limits. And what is more reasonable than to say that reservation under Clause 4 shall not exceed 50% of the appointments or posts, barring certain extraordinary situations as explained here and after. From this point of view, the 27% reservation provided by the impugned memorandums in favor of backward classes is well within the reasonable limits. Together with reservation in favor of scheduled castes and scheduled tribes, it comes to a total of 49.5%. Beneath the legalese, observe the narrative power of numbers at play. Any measured phenomenon creates implicit norms of what is too high or too low. The 50% limit seems intuitively just right or balanced, half of the seats have quotas while the other half doesn't. This powerful narrative largely survived for over 25 years, but seems to be falling apart now. And so it appears that reservations have ceased to be a means to correct for inadequate representation of certain disadvantaged sections. Instead, reservations have become springboards for all groups to demand proportional representation. The implicit norm now is that the state needs to enable representation of groups in educational institutions and government jobs according to the proportion in the population. The question of historical disadvantage has been relegated to an incidental criterion. Moreover, the general equilibrium effect of quotas is that group identities have become sharper and more powerful. Part 1. Is there another way out? There is no doubt that a republic founded in a society with a long history of systematic discrimination will inevitably resort to some affirmative action. But is there a way out beyond caste-based reservations? Nitin Pai and I had proposed one such alternative a couple of years ago in first post, linked on screen. Consider this thought experiment. There are no predetermined quotas for any posts. Positions are filled only based on a composite score of all applicants. The composite score is a combination of two measures. The first is an inequity score, calculated to compensate for the relative disadvantage faced by an applicant. The second measure strictly represents an applicant's ability to be effective for the position they are applying for. Selection is on the basis of the composite score. No seats are reserved, and yet the score allows for addressing multidimensional inequity much better than current methods. The inequity score can be used to indicate relative disadvantage along several dimensions, individual, social and geographic. Different factors can be assigned different weightages. For instance, given the salience of caste in the Indian social context, the greater the disadvantage a community faces, the higher the weightage. In addition, we can incorporate other parameters into the inequity score, parents' level of education, income levels, rural upbringing, or even childhood nutritional deficiencies. Currently, our system of quota-based allocations does not account for non-caste disadvantages that have a disproportionate impact on life outcomes. 
a national commission for equity can be formed to propose and review parameters and their weightages within a cooperative federal framework. It doesn't have to be one size fits all solution. States can assign their own factors and weightages according to the local conditions. The second measure, an effectiveness score, can then be kept completely independent of equity considerations. It can take the form of a test, an interview or any other indicator to assess candidates' ability to perform the job they have applied for. Information about the inequity scores can be masked from evaluators of the effectiveness score. By filling positions based on a sum of the two scores, it becomes possible to be more comprehensive in addressing social inequities, while also creating stronger incentives for an individual pursuit of excellence. Satish Deshpande and Eugendra Yadiv had proposed a similar model for higher education way back in 2006. An evidence-based model addressing multiple sources of group and individual disadvantages helps to do essentialize identity markers such as caste or religion, that is, it provides a rational explanation why specific castes or communities are entitled to compensatory discrimination and undermines attitudes that treat such entitlements as a birthright. In essence, this solution tries to solve for both merit and disadvantage. The opponents of reservation claim that quotas directly undermine efficiency and merit. The proponents of quotas on the other hand find the notion of merit completely odious. They argue on these lines. Efficiency of administration in the affairs of the union or of a state must be defined in an inclusive sense, where diverse segments of society find representation as a true aspiration of governance by and for the people. In contrast to quotas, the composite score solution acknowledges that some assessment of merit is inescapable, even desirable. But it also doesn't ignore the problem that disadvantaged individuals face. Hence, we believe it is a better solution than quotas. In EDITION number 72, we discussed a framework on nine competing visions of equality, only to reiterate Deborah Stone's insightful conclusion. Equality often means inequality, and equal treatment often means unequal treatment. The same distribution may look equal or unequal, depending on where you focus. Essentially, any distribution, however equalizing it is in one respect, can be charged as being unequal on another parameter. What matters far more is whether distribution is perceived as being fair or not. As Starman's et al. write. Humans naturally favor fair distributions, not equal ones, and that when fairness and equality clash, people prefer fair inequality over unfair equality. In the Indian context, quotas come with charges of unfairness. It is time to look beyond them. P.S. A commonplace assertion that the Constitution imagined reservations to last only for 10 years at the outset is a myth. This 10-year clause was meant to apply to reservations of seats for South Carolina and street groups in the Lok Sabha and Legislative Assemblies. There was no such 10-year limit on reservations in jobs and educational institutions under Articles 15.4 and 16.4. I too believed in this urban myth having read it being regurgitated in countless opinion pieces. Hat tip to an alert Puli Yabazi listener for updating my prize. Homework. Reading and listening recommendations on public policy matters. Links available on screen. 1. Video. The Big Idea, a half-hour interview between Noam Chomsky and British journalist Andrew Marr, first aired by the BBC in February 1996. A great interview where Andrew Marr is completely convinced he's not taken in by the propaganda, while Chomsky is sure he is. 2. 
podcast. A Puliabazi episode discussing the nine competing visions of equality, 